Hello, and welcome to the show Gold Squadron Gays. It's the podcast where two Star Wars-loving gays break down each episode of their favorite Star Wars TV shows, while also being gay as hell. I'm your host, Bradley Brower. I'm your other host, Charles Rogers, and we have a guest with us today. Guest, if you would like to go ahead and introduce yourself to the group. Uh, so I'm Claire. Um, I use she, they pronouns. I have a I have a podcast it's called Fulcrum Transmissions. I host it with my friend Sage. She's amazing. And we kind of go crazy over there every week. We talk a lot about Star Wars books, specifically books and comics, but we cover all the shows too. And I also post a lot on TikTok and Twitter. And I'm also really annoying and crazy there. So you can follow me if you want. If you want to <laughs> nope. be subjected to that. <laughs> now, I recommend Fulcrum Transmissions for two reasons. Uh, the firstly is I'm a huge fan of their Girl Boss of the Week series. It is excellent. And then also they do a lot of High Republic coverage over there. So when the High Republic is coming out, uh, which it's about to resume, Bradley, I'm not sorry for what I'm going to subject you to. Uh, I was going to say. Transmissions will cover it. No, I actually, I watched uh, this week in Star Wars, I think uh, today it came out and they said something about like some dumb High Republic books are coming out next week or something. Or I guess when this airs, they'll be out. So Yeah. So if you're not Bradley and you appreciate taste... (laughs) (laughs) You can listen to Fulcrum Transmissions to get good discussion on those High Republic books over there, which I know I will certainly be listening to it because I need more High Republic in my life. We did invite Claire on because I know for a fact that Claire is a fellow Mon Mothma obsessionist. There are not there were not many of us before this show came out. Yeah, that is true. I've seen a lot more people talking about her recently and sort of like trying to learn more lore about her. And I'm like, finally, like I've been waiting for this one. At last, at last. Well, because we didn't have that much, right? Her, yeah. her portrayal in Legends, she didn't have a lot of interesting like personal character moments. The only one is like, it turns out she found out her son died like minutes before doing the briefing and Return of the Jedi. Other than that, she's just kind of there. Yeah. Canon, we've always viewed her from like this outside perspective to where she talks to Leia. Oh my God. The the twin moving target and Princess and the Scoundrel bits where she talks to Leia, I lost my mind. <laughs> At the one in Princess and the Scoundrel. Because she, uh, she mentions Bale and Brea Organa, which I'm like, you were friends with her for 30 years. Mention the Organas more, please. I can't wait for them to inevitably show up in this show. Yeah, I can't. I also can't wait. I know it's going to happen. Oh, it's, I think it's, it's coming toward the end or we'll get like a bail mention. Yeah. I find it difficult to believe that uh, they're not going to show up and personally throw Perrin Fartha off of the building. <laughs> I truly believe that's going to be the ending. <laughs> All right. Well, before we dive into the episode itself, I do have a couple. There's no thing Charles fucked up this week, which is pretty amazing considering we covered three episodes last time. But we do have a fun fact, the end of an argument. So the first fun fact I wanted to bring up is somebody pointed out to me the name Canari, the planet that Cassian comes from, sounds, gets like strip mined away. Canary sounds a lot like canary, as in canary in the coal mine, as in the canary is supposed to die 
and that's how you know you need to get the fuck out of the mine. So that might be where that name comes from, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, the other thing is we do have a definitive, we know how old Cassian is. Uh, in the intervening time between recording episodes two and three and now, we have learned that one, the flashbacks are taking place just prior to the Clone Wars. So this is not happening at the end. And two, Cassian is nine. So we now have canon confirmation that he lied about his age on his dossier. He is not 26 in Rogue One. I feel bad for... So what are you like, 36? Like, I don't understand... (laughs) He's like, by my friend Emily, who I will mention a little bit later on at Your Weird Aunt Emily, has been exhaustively trying to figure out the timeline. She pegs Cassian at about 32 in Rogue One, meaning he's about 27 in this series. That's what we're sort of thinking. Interesting, because he does mention at one point in this episode he's 16, so... Uh, like uh, he was 16 at one point like there's a so you're slowly trying to figure out the timeline as he he's keeps also mentioning probably things. lying in that and we'll get to the battle of Menben. we'll we'll get to Menben and the discrepancies there bradley i know you don't watch it but claire have have you ever watched doctor who specifically the 11th doctors the matt smith run yeah so you know the number one rule the doctor lies I have a feeling oh, we're dealing. Yeah. I have a feeling we're dealing with a Cassian. Cassian lies. That's the number one rule about anything Cassian Andor says. Probably lying. All right. Our last segment before we dive into the episode uh, is the segment we call the Mon Mothma Minute. It is the bit up front where I just get to gush about uh, Mon Mothma and how much of a slay she is. You kind of got a bonus one. In, I kind of got a, a bonus bit. one? You kind of got a bonus Mon Mothma minute earlier where you were kind of going off about her. So I, I, this is technically your second Mon Mothma. Shut up, Bradley. <laughs> she gets two this time because we have a guest. Okay. And I want our, to give our guest a moment as well to discuss just what an absolute slay she is in every single scene she's in. Like the walk, the outfit. Can we talk about her like versatility of her outfit and the way she has like the collar in front of her in some scenes and then when she gets home and in the cab she's like opening it can we talk about just how good her outfits are like the one outfit because i feel like we need to discuss this yeah it's literally like there were like photos of some of her dresses before the show came out and i was like those look so good but the way that they like look in context is even better and especially like within the setting of coruscant like when she goes back to her apartment yeah and it has like the robe and everything i was like girl you're so perfect who let her dress like that in this show they did that for me it's very like business sometimes business sometimes casual like it's very indicative of her character she can be like whatever she needs to be in that given situation like it's closed off when she's outside of her home and when she's at home she can open up a little bit and take her jacket off and her imperial oh so good Mm, so good who whoever was the costume designer on this genevieve o'reilly has mentioned it just about every episode Mm, chef's kiss uh and that concludes our mon mothma about a minute and a half Uh, you're lucky my Mon Mothma music goes on for a little longer, so. Clara, I don't I don't know if you know this, but uh, when the actual episode comes out, Bradley will overlay that with the music from her speech from Secret Cargo. It's so good. It, it sounds <laughs> incredible. All right, Bradley, go ahead and take us into the episode. Absolutely. So this week we're going to be discussing Andor episode four titled Aldani. Out of options, Cassian is recruited for a dangerous mission to infiltrate an Imperial garrison. Claire, what is 
one thing you liked about this episode and one thing you did not. So the one thing I liked is that we kind of had this complete arc that took place over the first three episodes. And I like how this episode kind of switched gears while still fitting into the like overarching narrative of Rebellion. But it's still, it's kind of like starting its own story and we have like new characters. I like that there was a very definitive shift in between episodes three and four. Something I didn't like is that Bix was not in this episode. One, because I just love her and I want to see more of her. But also I feel like we left her in a dark place and I would like to at least know like what she's doing now that Cassian is kind of on the run. Where is Bix? Is she okay? <laughs> is she all right? So one thing I, I liked about this episode, I like the broadening scale. I like how now that we're three episodes in, we've broadened out. We're on a new planet. We're still discussing Ferret. Uh, that is still in the narrative that we haven't left Ferret's behind fully because uh, Deidre and other characters at the ISB will discuss the events of Ferret. However, we're on Aldani now and we're on Coruscant and we're the first three episodes were very confined to this one specific incident and now we're getting more of a sense of scale of the galaxy and the different players who are going to be involved in the rebellion one thing I didn't like I'm going to continue harping on this because I don't don't like it I don't like it the episode ending is so abrupt like again with the first three I worried about this in the first three and this was my thing I didn't like in episode one because I worried that it would feel like you're watching the episode you're watching the episode, you're watching the episode, and now the train has stopped at the station for a week. So rather than having a, a sort of natural rise and fall, doing this episode and this this series in three art means that two of those episodes don't really have good, definitive, strong ending. And so that that's going to be my thing that I disliked. Once again, I, I just do not like that the episodes just end. I'm sure it's going to be better when I can sit down and binge it all at once, but it it just, it feels so abrupt to me. Like it, it doesn't have the oh I'll watch one more episode because it's a cliffhanger it's oh I'll watch one more episode so I can see what the fuck was the point of half of that what about you Bradley one thing you liked and one thing you did not I'll agree with you on the did not it is feeling weird when they end because you almost need I I hope that the format of this show is not three episode three episode three episode because then that will really take away I regret to inform you that it is I regret to inform you that it is and it's going to get worse in season two yeah see I feel like that takes away from like the suspense um, and I like to have a complete story all at once but anyway one thing I did like though was this was giving us a glimpse into what Charles and I call the uh, Imperial West Wing show that we want so badly because every single scene with Deidre was like I was like this is the show I want I want the Empire show where everybody's in the Empire and they're all backstabbing each other to climb the ladder of success like that's the show I want to see and I, I love it because everybody in the Empire sucks and it's amazing uh i am uh i am getting definite flashbacks like if they were to do like a nihil show or a show with the nihil in it uh, I have a sense it would be this this same kind of vibe where you have people like clawing at each other for to rise in the ranks. Uh, Claire's just nodding along because they know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, but yeah, this is something Bradley and I have wanted for ages. We have wanted to get into the minutia of the politics. And especially with the Mon Mothma and the Deidre stuff, we will get that start to get that in this episode, which is extremely exciting. Our episode begins with Luthan and Cassian bound for the planet Aldani during the flight, Luthen tries to convince Cassian to join his fight against the Empire and get paid for it. Did y'all notice the title 
music has changed slightly. No, I didn't notice that. I thought it had changed. It seemed like it changed slightly. Oh, maybe it, it's because it I skipped it this time. Bradley. <laughs> Bradley. Well, you know me. I always check the Star Wars logo. And if that doesn't change, then I just skip the titles because then I'm like, whatever. Like nothing matters to me. It's got like this underlying, like more intense, like I almost want to call it a baseline under it. Like mm. it feels like from the get go, we're in a new arc. It feels like we're in a new like section of the show that's different from the first three. So I, I just had to note that. Do you want to know who's voicing the Fondar droid mod? I didn't ca- I didn't have that on my uh, notes. Who, who's uh you who's wouldn't because it's not listed on imdb of course not. uh let me real fast bring up his wikipedia page oh okay i figured wikipedia finally would have caught up by now so uh, those interns are sweating they're doing their best bradley i usually give them like i'm like okay you guys have one day to get every single fact from the episode that you can and that's all you get and then by friday if you don't have all the notes on wikipedia by then then why are you here you're not serious about star wars the uh the gentleman voicing our Fondor droid mod is a gentleman named David W. Collins. David W. Collins is a big deal in Star Wars sound. He's been working in Star Wars sound from around 2006, maybe a little bit sooner. Uh, but if you have played a Star Wars video game, particularly one around the Clone Wars era, David Collins was involved in that game in some capacity. He was involved in Star Wars Bounty Hunter, which I consider to be the best of that era of games. He was involved a couple of voices in Knights of the Old Republic 2. He's a lot of voices in Republic Commando. He's the he's a sound designer on a whole bunch of different Star Wars stuff. Uh, looks like he was on The Mandalorian Season 1. He was a sound editor on Book of Boba Fett. He's involved in some capacity in just about everything. So he's a big deal. He's the one voicing our fund or droid mod. I looked up Mednog. I don't know what it is. Oh, Eggnog or whatever he calls it. Mednog. Mednog, The Mednog. It's it's obviously Eggnog with Bacta in it. Like, what else would it be? Like, it's just supposed to make you feel better. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe they mix, like, Bacta with whiskey or something. Like, I don't know. Um, I I will now headcanon that it comes from the Hetzal system because I want to. I have have made that choice. Uh, Yeah, I don't know what that is. I looked it up. I don't know. So... I find it interesting, Luthien, Luthien, I, I said fucking Luthien again, oh my god. You know why it is, it's because Claire's here. Claire's here, and Claire is also as into the Lord of the Rings as I am. So, <clears throat> Claire knows exactly who Luthien is. Do you see my pain here? Do you see what I have to endure? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I have to keep track of House of the Dragon, I have to keep track of Rings of Power, I have to keep track of Andor. I just started season two of Elite, thank god that has, like, people with no normal sounding names in it losing my mind over here <laughs> i find it super interesting the fact that luthan is like pressing cassian to where he's like cassian keeps insisting over and over again i'm not that into the cause dude i i really don't want to hurt the empire as much as you say i steal because money and luthan is like no i can see in you that you're just lashing out and you need somewhere to lash out to. I think that's an interesting dynamic between the two characters. I would say he is reading the room wrong, Luthen. Get out of here. Cassian doesn't want to be a part of your rebellion whatsoever. He just wants to, you know, have a good time with his friends and not, you know, pay people back money that he owes them. Yeah, I think it's interesting too, because like the rebellion is definitely desperate 
for members at this point because they're going up against the entire empire and we still have a lot of like individual rebel cells rather than a full rebel alliance but it's still interesting to me yeah how hard he's trying to get this one person to join when he's already expressed that like oh I'm I don't actually care that much like I'm just trying to survive I don't want to be a part of a rebellion and so yeah I think it, it says a lot about Luthen of like what potential is he able to see in Cassian and also like how how much has he been doing like recruiting for the rebellion and how much is that something that he's like done a lot of and that's why he knows how to find the kind of people that are going to be really valuable to the cause. Yeah, I do think the question of how much recruitment Luthen has done for the rebellion is interesting because we get to see a little more about Luthen in this episode. Uh, we get to see just how many people he knows. And it does feel like the rebellion is very disconnected because at this time, we know that Ahsoka Tana is working for the Rebellion as Fulcrum. So one would think that the Rebellion, at least as it comes to Mon Mothma, Bail Organa, and all of that, would have some degree of organizations because we see Ahsoka communicating with the Ghost Crew during this exact year, during this event. And yet Luthen is out here with Mon Mothma and they don't seem to know what each other is doing. So it's almost like Luthen is filling a kind of Fulcrum ish role in the way that Ahsoka did it, but not connected and maybe doesn't even know about Ahsoka. I now need to know if Luthen Rail knows who Ahsoka Tano is. This is very important. Claire, you're the expert. What do you think? So I think, yeah, I think that Luthen is sort of like a fulcrum type person for Mon Mothma in the way that um, Ahsoka is for Bail Organa. But yeah, because the, the Ghost Crew is very much like their own cell that's a part of this wider network, but they don't actually like link up with any of the other cells. And I think that the group on Aldani is similar to that of like, they're kind of their own self-contained unit. But then my question is more like, how many of these rebel cells is Luthen overseeing? Like, is it just that one or are there others? And then how much does Mon Mothma know about the individual cells within this network? And also how much should she know? Because she's obviously in a different, a very unique position. So I think for Luthen, it would be more of like, should I be telling her about about these people I'm recruiting or should I just kind of like better it's better like to not say some things out loud yeah that's the interesting thing too about Luthen and Mon and like we'll get to that when we we get to their scene but one interesting thing for me is I just always assumed that Mon had more say in what was going on but yeah Claire's right it doesn't seem like she knows about a lot of this and she can't know about a lot of this so Luthen's having to be the one running around who can sort of escape notice when you know in reality she can't know any of these things because of her position so I think that's interesting to watch Luthen talk to Cassian and be the one to recruit him when it gives Luthen a bit more power in this situation than I think I personally was expecting when we first learned about the character and we first learned that Mon Mothma was going to be such a huge player in this so it's it's an interesting take on the rebellion as a unit because it can't function the same way as the Empire with the top-down bureaucracy. And neither do I think Bale and Mon and indeed Padme, whose legacy is being carried through in the rebellion. I do not care what Twitter says. Padme helped start the rebellion. That is the petition of the 2000 subplot. That, that's all canon. So embodying that spirit forward of democracy and cooperation into the rebellion, one way that that seems to manifest is the fact that there is no real quote-unquote leader. Everybody's kind of doing their part for the cause and has different degrees of say. So Luthen isn't giving orders to Mon any more than he's, you know, 
taking orders from her, but we then see that he's giving orders to Vel later on, kind of chewing her out, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Speaking of, of groups that um, are mentioned uh, as part of the larger rebellion, we do get a mention of the Partisan Front in this scene, one of several Saw Gerrera mentions. I wonder if he will show up later in this series. Seems unlikely, but who knows? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think Saw Gerrera, he's certainly not a popular character for nah. the film to use doubt it uh definitely force whitaker you know hated playing the part never oh, reprised the role absolutely hated it uh <laughs> definitely hasn't showed up <laughs> okay let's 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 do the membin thing so cassian mentions that he was on Memben at age 16, and we know that he was nine when he was taken from Kanari. We know this now, which had to have been about 22-ish BB. Okay, I did a bunch of math, and the point is, it seems like if he was actually 16 when he was there, he would be there about two years before the battle that shown in Solo. Now, I think okay, he's lying about see- his age wait that doesn't make any sense though so i wikipedia that and Did you? it says that in solo takes place 10 bby that's only five years before this right but if cassian is 9 and 22 bby right okay no uh how's that taking place in 10 bby i thought that's that was what in... wikipedia says i don't know i thought that was in 12 bby no 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 that's the beginning of the movie takes place in 12 bby then he gets shipped off to the whatever and it says two years later he's on on Mimban. That's when the movie starts technically. Okay. That's when he meets Chewbacca or whatever. So like whenever he meets Chewbacca is when the movie officially starts and that's 10 BBY. I'm trying to mentally do math. I don't know math either. So Point is... (laughs) Completely <laughs> discounting Cassian's age. Uh, right. It is It is highly likely that the script means for it to be the same Battle of Memben, though, which is okay. why I think that Cassian's age can be discarded. I think that this is probably right. the same Battle of Memben. Well, that's why I was uh, confused. I was like, is he saying that he was at Memben the same time that Solo was at Memben, which would mean if he's 30 now, that means he was only like 25-ish, you know, like during well, he's that 20, time? he's 20 seven in in the show oh in this show right now in this show he's 27 ish ish okay so, so minus five <laughs> so like you're telling me that he's that's now again lying about his age because he says he was 16. i think he's lying about his age. <laughs> all this to say i think the script means it to be the same battle of men it is possible there were multiple battle of Memmons. got it but I think the script intends it to be the same. Now, what's interesting is he mentions not knowing they were fighting their own people, i.e. he doesn't necessarily know that it was a proxy war, which sort of me seems to mean that he might have been fighting against the Empire or thought he was fighting against the Empire, which would put him on the opposite side as Han Solo and Valance. Uh, sorry, Valance Twitter. I, I do think that he did not, in fact, serve a hamburger to Valance. Claire is, is laughing on mute because she knows exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, I already saw people being like, do you think that um, Cassie and Andor cooked Valance, like his last meal that he could taste? And I'm like, I really don't think so. Like, I'm sorry, guys. I don't, I don't think that's what happened. <laughs> Yeah, because he also says there was only like 50 other guys that survived, uh, which which would sort of imply that he was either not fighting for the Empire or didn't realize he was fighting for the Empire. That's another theory. But yeah, I don't think he had any contact with our Imperial. Uh, you don't know. Is it is it Valance? Is it Valance? I've always pronounced it Valance. I've always said Valance. I know there are Valance people. I don't know if if Ethan Sachs has ever said one way or the other, but I always it- say Valance. 
It's a comics character, Bradley. Uh, very, okay. very popular in the Twitter sphere. Um, you, you don't need to worry about him. I'm sure he'll turn up in a show eventually. It sounds to me like his name is Volance. Oh, that's how I'm going to say it. You need to know that he is very robotic and a very sad boy and very hot. These are all of the things that you need to know about this. Hot, sad robot. Got it. Okay. Hot, sad, cyborg guy. Got it. Oh, is he a, Is he the one that's on the cover of the Bounty Hunter thing? The yeah. Comic yeah, book? yeah, yeah. That's him. Blue guy, like half his face is a cyborg. Oh, so he's Terminator. Okay, got it. Yeah, he's... One day we will do a comics <laughs> episode or he'll show up in something and I will get to educate you on the history of this character because unfortunately I do know it. Got it. Okay, cool. At the galactic capital of Coruscant, Imperial Security Bureau Supervisor Deidre Miro attends a meeting at the ISB headquarters. Major Partagaz demands updates on each of the supervisor sectors. Supervisor Belevin updates him on the incident on Ferrix, piquing the interest of Deidre. Claire, I would like to apologize to you. I was under the impression that we were done going through all of the fucking actors in this show when we got through the last three episodes. And unfortunately, they have dropped about 12 new characters on us. So we are going to blow through the important one just as fast as we possibly can. I am sorry this cast is so big. All right, real fast, Bradley, let's... Who are... Who are the people that you took notes on? Because I have my three that I definitely want to mention. Okay, I ha- I only did the main. I call them the main three, which yeah, was the, the, the ones I mentioned. Um, we'll start with Agent Blevin. He's the guy who kind of butts heads with Deidre the entire episode, right? His name is Ben Bailey Smith. Fun fact, this guy was also in that random 101 cartoon Dalmatian show that- I saw uh, that. I what, thought he uh, might have a Disney trifecta. He's also no. in Cinderella. Right, that's not Disney though. That's just oh. Amazon Prime, but- Oh shit, I have- I have been deceived by the corporations. I got my massive unethical capitalist corporations mixed up. Tut, tut, tut. You just fall. You think Disney owns all these stories? No. I think Disney owns everything. <laughs> no, he's just in a random Cinderella. Cinderella. Retail Cinderella. But yeah, so he was in that. And then uh, he also, I just threw in, a, he was on a Doctor Who episode because I figured you'd like that. And then I think he's most known for Law and Order UK. So that's kind of what he kind of comes from. Now, but quickly, I do want to state that the character that he's playing is Lieutenant Blevin, no S, who is an ISB lieutenant, not to be confused with Captain Blevins, a character uh, who dies on Endor and is mentioned in the Aftermath oh, book. Like, like I was going to bring that <laughs> so up. So these, these are two different characters I want to throw out there. Got it. Blevin. Okay. Um, next character. Is Blevin. Is, next character is Major Partigaz. He's kind of the dude in charge. Um, he is played by Anton Lesser. Uh, you might know him best for his role in Game of Thrones. Uh, he plays the character called Quyburn. 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 Okay. I don't Kyber. know. I, I watched sure Game Kyber. of Thrones. I don't know all the characters' names. I just enjoyed you the show. All, you said on the show you watched all six seasons of Game of Thrones. I did, but I don't memorize the side character's name. Well, I um, did because <laughs> I need mental health. And this is what happens when I get into a TV mm. show. Well, fun fact, if Anton uh, just goes ahead and gets a Marvel thing, he'd have a Disney trifecta because he was also in Pirates of the Caribbean 4, um, which was interesting. So he's got a little bit of a um, resume there. And finally, the one we really want to talk about 
uh, my one of my new favorite characters on the show, uh, Deidre Metro, who is played by Denise Go. I knew you'd uh, love her. I I knew I would love her too because Imperial woman, say no more. I don't need I don't need any other information. <laughs> <laughs> now we'll get to whether or not she has step on me energy in a bit uh okay. but do you want to tell us about who is playing Deidre Miro yes uh Denise Go. I wrote down a few things that were interesting that she's been in so one thing I thought was interesting is she does the voice of Yennefer in the Witcher 3 game and I guess mm-hmm. all the Witcher games I believe Yennefer only appears in the Witcher 3 however okay. I have there only played part of the first Witcher game and I did not like it very much she also did a voice that doesn't say which voice um, in Star Wars Battlefront. So she's done voice work for that. I don't know what she did in that. Um, if anybody knows, let us know. But it was randomly she was in that. The most interesting thing I saw on her resume was a unaired Game of Thrones prequel pilot. Oh, interesting. That piqued my interest. I wonder if I was she like, was in the Long Night pilot. I don't know which one she would have been in. Because they made like three or four. Or they did three or so, four pilots. So. so they had five in development. George R. R. Martin called it, a, it was four or five, but he called it like the War of the Five Pilots or something. <laughs> to where they had five potential pilots in development. And they shot one for the Long Night, which was the first White Walker invasion the first others invasion which is the the like heroic legendary one there's conflicting evidence on why they didn't pick that pilot up one story says that the executives thought it was too different from game of thrones martin himself has expressed that while he likes the pilot he didn't think it was a good prequel because according to him it would be like doing a prequel to the sopranos where you tell the story of the founding of italy so that pilot did unfortunately get scrapped in favor of house of the dragon which we currently have on which they thought would be more of a return to form so i'm guessing she was probably in the long night pilot that got scrapped well if we ever have a chance to interview her or talk to her we'll ask her we'll just be like i don't know if you can tell us i can be like like, i don't know do i look like brian to you nobody wants to be on do i look like fulcrum transmissions getting to talk to daniel jose older my only interaction with daniel jose older was very awkwardly saying hello to him at celebration uh right before running off to tell claire co-host about the High Republic TV show that was literally announced as we were all standing around. Claire Claire is laughing because, again, she does exactly what episode of Fulcrum Transmissions I'm talking about. Go listen to their interview with Daniel Jose Older and Stan Midnight Horizon, the gayest Star Wars book to date. Yeah, so those are our those are ISB our three here. Those are our three ISB ages. I am going to blast through some trivia. Okay. Ryloth is mentioned in this scene, but they also mentioned needing to, like, pull back a little bit from or like they don't want to destabilize the local government too much which i found super interesting arvala six is mentioned this is our first instance of arvala six however we have been to the arvala system before we have been to arvala seven the planet next door because that is where Kuwil live in Mando season one. I, I see your brain attempting to compute, Bradley. Remind me again. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. It's been a minute so since I've seen The Mando, plot so. of the Mandalorian <laughs> is that there is a Mandalorian. Quill. Ah, oh God, why is okay. it not? The planet in episodes one and two where Den goes and he rescues Grogu and then he fights the Mudhorn with the Jawas. And they come back to it in episode seven to pick up Kuil to watch the baby Yoda while they go to the thing. I'm literally staring at like an action figure of this stupid character and 
I'm like, who the fuck is Quill? I'm literally you looking forgot at his who face. Quill was? Like, I really did because it's it sucks because you know they kill him and it's like uh, you forget about him very easily and it's Claire, are you looking for a new co-host gig? Is is uh is, is anybody looking for a new co-host gig? Because unbelievable. Well, thankfully, we're not covering the Mandalorian at this time, so I don't have yeah, to we already that did it. right now. Exactly. And if you'd like to listen to that, go to our backlogs oh. and listen to all the Mandal- where I actually talk about how much I love. Love Will, I'm sure. We also explain for uh, the new people in the audience what the Imperial Security Bureau is, uh, and we establish just how aggressive. I just noticed something on Denise Gus IMDb page that I immediately need to bring up. Okay, she has played a character named Orla before. This means nothing to Bradley, but Claire is laughing. I I had to bring this up. I am. I am sorry. Claire, do you want to explain who Orla is and why this is funny to me? Yeah, Orla Jereni is from the High Republic. Um, oh. She's a Wayseeker Jedi, so she's like affiliated with the Jedi Order, but is on kind of like a little like walkabout type thing. Like she doesn't do what the council tells her to do. She does like her own path and she's amazing and I love her. She's also my favorite character in the High Republic. We don't need to address the fallen star. That didn't happen. She brings such a good, like, toxic energy to this character. Like, we praised Kyle Soler for how shitty he made uh, Cyril in the first three episodes. Uh, But I also want to praise Denise for how shitty she makes Deidre in a completely different way. Yeah, I like how she's she's wrong, but in all the right ways. (laughs) She's very, like, she's more ruthlessly ambitious. Mm-hmm. than Cyril was. Cyril's like, the law is the law and I must enforce it. And Deidre's like, the law is the law and also maybe I should be the one enforcing it, which we personally love a girl boss. Uh, and she has girl boss energy from the minute moment go. Yeah, she's very like, I, d- I don't want to see any Imperial succeed, but then once I see her, I'm like, but I kind of want you to get what you want. Like, I kind of want you to be successful in the Empire, which is so bad, but it's also like, she's a girl boss. Like, I can't root against her. I mean, she's a fascist, but also surrounded by men who really should not be in charge. Especially, what is it, Patagast? The guy in uh... charge is such a fucking asshole. And I'm like, I really want to see Deidre knock him down a peg. Like, you know, if she was in charge, of the ISB, Orson Krennic would not have happened. I truly believe she would not have stood for his bullshit. I feel like Orson Krennic went to school with Major Partigas, so they're like, they like slightly, they're like best friends, but like, they, you know what I mean? Just like how every man... Oh, you know what I just realized? He Orson Krennic may only just be mildly older than Deidre. They may not be that far away from each other, like in age. Really? Well, she looks to be what? Well, he's closer to her than Partagast is. I would put him maybe about 10 years older than her. No. Because he's in his 20s. He could be her dad. Krennic? Krennic's yeah. like in his 40s. Like yeah, early he's an old 40s. man. Bradley. He's old. She's like 30. Bradley, you are not a 20-year-old twink anymore. Okay, she's 40, like 30. Early 40s is not that old. He's 48 minimum. He's 48? I'm, I'm just guessing by the gray in his hair. Like, he is old. 
I I have only ever seen him with just blonde hair. What? No, he's got like grayish, dirty blonde hair. What are you talking about? Maybe we'll get. My point is that I I think it is highly likely that Deidre and Krennic have interacted before. Um, I'm gonna say no because she's like, how many little things does she have on her chest? So she only had like three little bars, and he has like a full thing, right? Like so. Listen, <laughs> because I, I don't know the rankings. Her, but... I just want to imagine her slapping him down verbally. All right, hmm. let me have this. Okay, well, maybe when she finally climbs the ladder of success, she will inevitably do that. But I think we know how his story ends, so we don't have to worry about <laughs> that uh, interaction too much, because I don't know if it's going to happen in the next five years. Nothing good. Back on the planet of Aldani, Cassian shaves his beard and changes his name to Clem. Luthen gives Cassian a kyber crystal necklace as a down payment, and the group meets with a new contact named Vel and forces her to make Cassian part of the mission. Yeah, he does take his adoptive father's name, which is an interesting choice. Yeah, because he looks like such a strong Clem, but... Well, well, it's interesting that we're getting more stuff about Clem, Mm. right? Clem has barely shown up, but we already know a few things about him. We know Cassian clearly cares enough about him that that's the name he picks right off the bat, Mm -hmm. is Clem's name. We also know that he was probably the guy that was hanged at Rick's Road for biting against the Empire. So I'm sure this character will come up later, but I find it interesting that that's the name that Cassian defaults to. Do you want to tell us about who's playing Vel before we move on? Yeah, absolutely. So Vel Sartha is played by Faye Marseille. I love how that kind of all rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? So she was also in Game of Thrones. Uh, she played a character called the the Waif. Okay, do you remember in season five slash six when Arya was over training in Bravo and she was doing her ninja training? Sure. Uh, Bay Marzi is playing the one of the characters that she's training with. Oh, the girl who beat her up all the time. The girl that beat her up all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Faye okay. is Whoa. playing, playing She's so different there. Okay, that's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Well, Game of she was on Game of Thrones. I mean, it was a while ago. Yeah, twenty fifteen. Right. It was. A, it was it a is now twenty twenty two. Time progresses, and it's five BBY plus. Oh my God! Shut up, Bradley. <laughs> So I'm going to get yelled at if I don't bring this up. And I know every fucking clickbait article on the planet has mentioned this since the episode came out. Luthen gives Cassian a pendant. He says it's to celebrate pushing back the Rakatan invaders. That is a direct reference to Knights of the Old Republic and officially canonizes in media the Rakatan invasion of the galaxy several thousand years ago. Now... I had mistakenly thought this was already canon. Apparently it was mentioned a few places, kind of, but never explicitly confirmed until this moment that there was some sort of a Rakatan invasion. I do not have time to explain this invasion to you you guys now, but it's a big deal to Legends fans to have the Rakatan invasion recanonized. That That's my rant on the Rakatan invasion. I thought about just not fucking mentioning it. Yeah. And to have people like flood my DMs, like, why did you forget to, or tag me in Discord? Like, why'd you forget to to mention the Rakatan invasion? But I felt like I knew. Hmm. Watch Bradley now cut this entire segment out. So it looks like I didn't say anything. <laughs> Although I do want to talk again about Luthen Rail because the way he treats Vel in this scene is incredibly fascinating because he's kind of giving her orders, but not really. And then he like 
snaps at her and is like, you need to cancel the mission if it doesn't go well, but also this is your call and you wanted this. I'm curious what his deal is and what the relationship is between the two, especially given the conversation that Vel and Cassian will have about him later on. Yeah, I was also wondering about that because it felt a little more, there was a little more to that conversation than like he's her superior in this rebellion and she's like a like a leader of a smaller offshoot cell that he like oversees. It felt more personal than that because yeah, he does get pretty upset with her, but then it's also like this is kind of her operation that he's just like providing her with an extra person for, which again goes back to like how much authority does he actually have and like what's his role and is he overseeing multiple groups like this or is it more like this is kind of his direct project? Like I really want to know who exactly he is to the rebellion. Yeah, like what is what is the deal with the, is this how he like deals with all of his cell leaders? Like, do they generally have autonomy and he just sees himself as there to support them? But it also kind of is like, not really giving her a choice in some of the things that he says, and she seems to at least respect him. So the dynamics of the rebellion and what canon has done with it, versus Legends, where it really was just a strict military operation, especially this early rebellion, is so interesting to me because of the way it's structured and the way it doesn't feel like a military operation yet. It feels like a lot of different groups running around trying to do stuff that are vaguely connected. And Ahsoka Tano, bless her heart, is one woman who cannot possibly keep track of them all. I found that very interesting. At the Primor Enforcement Headquarters, ISB agent Blevin informs the security team that the Empire is taking over and blames them on their ineptitude during the Ferrex incident. Blevin has such big HR energy. <laughs> what I like is that it seems that that one guy, uh, I forget his name, the, um, ins- the head inspector guy, he in the Hine. first... Pine. Chief Inspector Hine. Hine, I'm sorry. In the first episode or the second episode he appeared in, he gave the idea that he was like, you know, like in charge and he was this big guy. And then he kind of was hinting at the fact that like, he's like, nah, I'm really lazy at my job. Like y'all just, you know, just do what I say and then we'll be fine. The empire won't come in. Well, now we see what happens when you overstep and when Cyril fucks up and he fucks all this over, you got Blevin who's like, y'all are stupid. I don't know what you were thinking. Uh, See, this is what it looks like when you try too hard and you fuck up. You don't know what you're doing. And they don't even know. Like, he doesn't even know what to say. He he literally is silent the whole time. And I just thought it was really funny how he's chewing him out in front of the other two. And the one guy was like, I wasn't even involved. Like, I didn't even do anything. And he wouldn't even let, what's it, Mosk speak. Mosk talk. He's 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 like, I have a question. No, you are all stupid. Nothing you say can change that. It's like, sign these reports validate these reports do not waste my time by reading the reports i do not give a shit what you have to say also kyle solar such a good actor yeah he really is does not say a word in this scene conveys everything you need to know about what's going on inside cyril's head as he watches the entire security bureau get dismantled i do think that cyril is becoming the exact character i want him to be which is like someone who is literally doing everything for the empire and is willing to like put in all the work that no one around him is willing to do and still getting absolutely nowhere. Like, I think that that's exactly what his character needs to be. Yeah. And I, 
I think they've not been settled in that he's going to team up with Deidre later on in the series. So it makes them interesting foils to each other to be able to say, you know, Cyril is constantly fucking up and never getting his due and constantly like being pushed down and demeaned. And Deidre's the same way, but her kind of, she's on the way up. He's on the way down. She's on the way up. I think they said at interviews, which I think is just a good dynamic. Uh, Also, God, Look, I'm as ashamed of myself for having a heterosexual ship as anyone else, but those two were just made for each other. Ugh, like I can't stand Claire, it. Claire is nodding. They agree with me. No, no, I agree. I think they'd be so toxic and it would end so <laughs> terribly for everyone, but like I would I would watch it. Like I think it would be good. They're the really awful couple that you like love to hate and you take secret delight every time something goes wrong for them. You're like, I hate you so fucking much. So watching you post on Facebook, word travels fast and there's so much drama. You can't trust the people. And you're sitting there like, "Mm, I know what this is about. I also feel like they're going to be together for just like promotional reasons. Like they'll, that's not romantic in any way whatsoever. They're like, this is a partnership because they both benefits us for our jobs. Like not because we actually like romantically like each other, but it's because if I'm with you, I get this. And if you're with me, I get that. Like it's a very selfish relationship. And it's just like, they don't care about each other's personal feelings. It's more just about how much better can I do in the empire because I'm with you kind of thing. Like you pump me up on my job and I pump you up on your job. And like, that's just what's going to be. I uh, <laughs> I fully believe they are the type of couple that would sign a notarized prenup before they even start dating. I fully believe this. Back on Aldani, Val briefs Cassian on their mission to rob an armory. Elsewhere, Deidre discovers they have jurisdiction on the Ferrex incident, and Luthen arrives on Coruscant, where he changes his wig and outfit to appear more regal. I, I need to mention the return of the Star Wars poncho. <laughs> okay. We are delighted, as always, to see the return of the Star Wars poncho, and also some TIE fighters, some honest-to-God TIE fighters. Love that. Speaking of Deidre and Cyril, uh, I specifically noted while watching the scene where she's like, I have jurisdictional access. I'm going to go into this. Uh, I specifically noted, oh, so that's how they're going to end up together. Because she's probably going to need to talk to somebody about what happened to Ferrix. Blevin uh. is stonewalling her. Cyril, as we will later find out, is on Coruscant. I will bet you anything she is going to realize that somebody from the Primor security force is there and want to talk to him. Mm Because we also see in trailer shot her interviewing Bix later on. Oh. So almost certainly she is going to find out that Cyril is there. And that's how they're going to meet. They're going to have the worst, most toxic meet cute you've ever seen in your life. Only these two would have like a fucking interrogation room date. No, because he's literally in an interrogation room in one of the trailer shots. So I'll bet you anything that's what happened. That's my prediction. (laughs) The scene of Luthen putting on his face is what I called it in my notes. Beautiful. I love that. Absolute masterclass in acting from Stellan Skarsgård. Absolute masterclass in direction with the tight shots of him putting everything on. And he turns around and he's like practicing his smile. Everyone, everyone knows that smile. Everyone knows that little practice. That is practicing your customer service face. 
I'd also like to note that this scene now canonizes Lay's front wigs because he goes from his regular hair to putting on his wig and it's perfectly laid down. You cannot see the edges on his wig. Uh, it, I don't know if he, did, he didn't use any glue or anything. So this is a space wig because it is perfect. You cannot even tell that he's wearing a wig. How much Drag Race have you watched? <laughs> None. Whatsoever. Uh, I, Whatsoever. I completely- Sir, you are a fucking twink. Obviously, I know you've watched Drag Race. Right. But I will just say, like, he has some very good skills putting on a wig because you cannot see his edges. Like, they're really good. So, like, I, I implore any Drag Race fans out there to watch this scene and go, like, did can you see any tracks? Like, can you see his wig? Nope, you can't because he is perfect at changing over into his, I guess we'll call it his his Coruscant look because I don't know what else you would call it because he clearly has two different kind of personalities. You have rebel Luthen and then you have Coruscant Luthen. And this is his character he puts on for people. We will literally see him switch between those two personalities later on in this, in this episode. Back on Aldani, Vel briefs Andor on the history of the planet and takes him to her camp where she introduces him to the rest of the team. Elsewhere, Deidre confronts Agent Blevin about the Ferex incident being her jurisdiction. They argue, and she threatens to take the matter up with Major Partigas. So I'm not by any means an expert on the history being drawn from from Andor, uh, but I am getting some Scottish Highlands vibe. Okay, so I had someone, someone actually Someone also mentioned that. To me, they, like someone was like outside of this completely, where it's just randomly really? like, yeah, they you were just randomly that like that. Can read? Uh, no, they watched the show, but um, they okay. were like, they were like, oh, so instead of having a planet that is just a climate, now we're doing planets that are different countries. So it's like Scotland planet, and they were like, that's what I got when I saw this planet. <laughs> well, because it's it's giving very British Empire moves in mm-hmm. to Scotland vibes. It's giving very how they dealt with it, you know, as as their quote unquote territory and how they went in and sort of fucked with the the native Scots. Uh, I'm not sure how much that translates over because that's not really an area that I've studied a lot. Uh, but we have several historians who listen to the show. So if if one of them wants to reach out to me and let me know how much of a vibe this is with that, please let me know. Generally too, it's sort of a comment on how local populations are treated under colonialism, where they're sort of moved around and disrupted to serve the interests of the colonizing power and how that has affected them. And I like that we we see that in the environment in a way that it's already happened, that we're not watching it happen. It's already happened. Uh, and we see the effects of colonialism literally on this Highlands area that they are. Star Wars, however, is not political. Blevin uh, in the scene in the office infuriates me because he gives me very don't rise above your station energy just like a man to tell a woman don't oh oh, we'll get to that get better at your job (laughs) we'll get to that because it's gonna get worse but yeah that's the exact yeah particularly women but a lot of minorities people who are visibly minorities in office environments We'll deal with this with the little microaggressions, the little stay in your place, the little don't rise above your station, don't get too ambitious, don't come for my job. And we're definitely seeing that with the way this character interacts with Deidre. And he's just like, I have jurisdictional access, fucking piece of shit. I like it because it, it gave me like a 
cops versus the FBI vibes. Like it's like whenever a murder happens or something, usually like the cops are like the first on the scene. And then if it's like a federal investigation, you know, the FBI comes in, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We got jurisdiction here because this is a serial killer. Obviously, like y'all need to leave. Like this is our our jurisdiction. And he was giving that like, no, no, no. Uh, this is our town. So this is my jurisdiction kind of vibes or it's his planet or whatever, his sector or whatever he said. Um, I just thought that was really fun. It's his sector that he oversees. And I mean, part of it too, that's the nice thing about the nuance of the characters is he kind of has a point and that he's really busy because we later find out that he's running six sectors to her too, which is another microaggression thing of giving someone less work to do, uh, not trusting them with as much, Hmm. uh, which is, this is a really shitty office. Uh, But we do find out he is very busy. So like, presumably though, he has his own staff and one of them could pull it. And it's like one report that they need. And I'm like, you're just being a piece of shit, dude. Probably exactly a piece of shit. Okay. We get introduced to the team, uh, the the rebel team or whatever we're going to call them. And there's a lot of people on the cell. That's how, how I've heard people refer to them. Okay, I like that. That's that's cool. I was just going to call them the Scotland Shepherds, but um, that's cool too. So are you ready for everybody on the team real quick so we never have to talk about this again? <laughs> give, give them to us very, very quickly. As quickly as I can. Okay, so the first one we see is the character's name is Karis Nemec. He's the younger kind of guy. Um, he's played by Alec Lothar. Uh, Charles would know him best from a little show he loves called Owl House. Uh, he does a voice on that show. He does the voice of someone called Philip on the show. Owl House um, is so good. Go watch it. So I thought you would like that. Other people He's might also, know him better for Black Mirror. I know him from the end of the fucking world. And yes, uh, okay. that's the actual title. Next up, we have the guy who kind of puts a gun to his face like because he fell asleep. That is the character of Arvel Skeen. Uh, he's played by Eben Moss Backrock. Oh my God, I don't even know how to say that name. Sorry. You got it right. Backrock. Uh, Backrock. Okay. He is interesting for two reasons. One, he almost has a Disney because he was in the Punisher show. So he was in a Marvel thing. Uh, but his Star Wars connection, other than this, is that he was in the show Girls with Adam Driver. So there's like a little six degrees of Kevin Bacon for you, or, or I guess it's six degrees of Adam Driver for you. Um, he was in that not show. add a new actor game to the show, please. I know, I, I know. I, I have know. enough. Um, next up is uh, the character's name is Taramin Barkin. He's kind of the bigger guy who comes in with the gun later on. His name is uh, Gershwin Eustace. Didn't see anything that we would know. He's a British actor. Next up is the medic girl. Her name is Sinta Kaz. She's played by Verada Sethu. Uh, she's most recently been in Jurassic World Dominion. So that's the you team. You happen to know who she plays in Jurassic World Dominion? Oh, God. <laughs> now you're going to make me look it up. Uh, I uh, have her page right. up. She plays Shira. Shira. Okay. I just watched the movie. I still don't know. I didn't recognize her. So I was like, I don't know who she plays. I know who she is. She's one of the rangers at the Biosyn like oh, okay. uh, transport area. Fun fact about me is that one of my other favorite franchises is Jurassic Park. So. <laughs> oh, okay, great. So there you go. You were like, I already know she was in the movie. <laughs> Damn, if I I'd known it. that, we 
we would have we would have let claire introduce her yeah there you go well if there's anybody else that's in any of the jurassic park franchises uh besides laura dern let us know um so that we can throw them in there samuel oh, l guess... jackson samuel l jackson oh. is star wars in yeah jurassic he was park. in the, he was in the first movies? movie he's oh. in the first movie i don't know i haven't seen it in so long so i don't remember so he's in I've the first just, one i've only watched the first one. Oh. Who are you then? Um, uh, someone who likes good movies. You have no class because you haven't watched all six movies. Like I have one time. Right. Um, <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um, I just wanted to introduce this to the team. There they are. Um, and they'll probably continue to show up for the next two episodes because uh, like you said, this is clearly a part of an arc. My only note, trivia note here is, is that we do get a mention of Saw Guerrera in this. Uh, mm. Shout out to... Uh, Stardust M, who uh, is a content creator that I follow on TikTok, who is constantly doing Saw Guerrero Watch. Uh, I'm sure she is probably delighted by this. Uh, but I was also delighted to see the, between the partisans earlier and Saw Guerrero being mentioned now, they're starting to set up who Saw is. Mm. Yeah, they're uh, dropping the hints because I feel like they're going to do like, he's in the next three episodes, not this current like, three that we're doing. I agree the following with that. Three. Yeah. And I think the final three will be Return to Ferrix. That's I my theory. That. I, I wanted to ask you you both, and, and Claire in particular, we, we're introduced to... Uh, these, this big block of new characters in this Aldani cell. Uh, what did you think of these new characters as well as how they're introduced in the context of the season? I know Claire in particular, you talked about liking that, you know, we've got new characters now. So now that they have shown up as far as the introduction of who these characters are, uh, what did you think of that? Yeah, so I think it's going to be because in the first three episode arc, we had some side characters from Ferex who are like people that Cassian knew or had worked with. And then they kind of like went away for this next arc that's starting. And so I think that these characters are going to be very similar. I feel like some of them maybe won't survive because that's how things tend to go in Star Wars. But for those that do survive, I feel like it's going to be like, and then there are these three episodes and then we kind of like leave them behind. The only difference I think is that the Ferrex people are going to come back at the end. Like you said, like, I think they're going to circle back to that. But I think that the stuff on Aldani is kind of be, going to be like its own self-contained arc. And so then the people who make it through this mission are going to kind of still be a part of the like whatever rebellion cells end up joining together under like Luthen and Mon Mothma. But I think they're going to kind of have their own story that's like just contained to these three episodes. How many do you think are going to survive? I I think uh, I think Nimic's a goner personally. Yeah, I agree with that, unfortunately. Wait, let me look at my list. I want to see like, okay, let's see. Oh, okay. He's going to... <laughs> The younger one's gonna die yeah he's definitely gonna die Never. um actually i think one two i think actually all the guys are gonna die i think all the women will survive that's my theory well we know cassian survives obviously well i don't count him he's not really we do me, know bell but... shows up later on in shots from the trailer and then a promo image with mon mothma so we know that bell at least makes it out yeah but yeah you i think, think everybody else is just goners they're, i think everybody goners. else is a goner I don't think uh, it's, it's going to be an extremely successful mission is the thing. Like, I think it's going to end badly because I think that adds more to like Cassian being like, okay, I agreed to do this. And then a bunch of people died. And now you want me to keep working for the rebellion. We have a massive red flag, Ari, the success of the mission that we will get to in a later scene. But they are waving a giant red flag that this thing is going to go off the rails basically immediately. Oh yeah, because it doesn't it follow we'll your We'll get rule? there. We'll, we'll we get, get there. there. Okay, okay, we're almost there. We'll we're get there. there. We'll All get right. to the high school rule on coruscant inspector cyril visits his mother luthan and his assistant meet with senator mon mothma 
And back on Aldani, the rebels are joined by garrison contact Lieutenant Gorn. Back on Coruscant, Mon Mothma arrives home and discusses arrangement for a dinner party with her husband she is not prepared for. This is the Mon Mothma section, but before we can get to Mon Mothma, uh, I want to note a few things with the Cyril section. Uh, Cyril does not touch elevator buttons. He, like, moves his sleeve down to poke the elevator buttons. Uh, I hate relating to him, and as I said on a previous episode, I I don't want to claim him, but he does give me very homosexual energy. Yeah, for sure. Or Uh, if not... If, if you don't want to claim him as homosexual, you can give him more Sheldon Cooper, Big Bang Theory. Like, he's almost, like, anti-social. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he's anti-people. not- Anti-people. People. Yeah, he's anti-people. Like anti-people. Yes. I could see that. I, I wonder how that will play into his relationship with Deidre. Thinking thoughts. Many thoughts. Speaking of thoughts, uh, so there was some debate earlier on, like, where Cyril's mother's house is. Like where uh, this apartment is. It's in Coruscant. There were some people technically pointing <laughs> out that she lives very high up in the city because there's sunlight. Oh, uh, is that like a rule? Like that if you're on the upper Generally, levels, the sun- lower down you go, you stop getting sunlight in mm. Coruscant. She gets sunlight. I think we're meant to interpret it as a little more of like a retirement community, like yeah. in the projects somewhere, because it's a very like gray stone building with no features to it. I think that's how we're meant to interpret it, but there's some debate. We will not be talking about Cyril's mom. We will talk about Cyril's mom next time. Okay. You don't, why don't we want to talk about her this time? Because we don't have time. Okay. On the Aldani on. scene, uh, on the Aldani scene, my only note is that Nevik should probably shut up and that everyone who is not Nevik is right to be suspicious of Cassian. Because Nevik's like, I feel his belief in the cause. And I'm like, I feel like you're a dumbass. And you're the first to die. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. You're going out first. Sorry. Rip. Do you want to talk about our two actresses that are introduced in the, the gallery scene before Claire and I become completely unhinged? Sure. So we can talk about the assistant character. Cause she doesn't have that many credits. So assistant, uh, she, her name is Clea or Clea. Don't remember how he said it. Um, she's played by Elizabeth Dolau. Uh, the only notable thing I saw that she was in besides this was a show on HBO called Gentleman Jack. So that's like a fun thing she did. Uh, she also did something else. I just didn't write it down. And then, of course, your favorite person of all time, a little known actress in the Star Wars universe, a playing Mon Mothma named Genevieve O'Reilly. Charles! Can you name anything else that she's been in? <laughs> uh, she's been in Tolkien. Uh, she has, of course, been Mon Mothma in Rogue One, Star Wars Go Rogue, Star Wars Rebels in multiple episodes, and again in Andor. Uh, she has been, and I'm looking for other things I recognize, she's been in Law & Order UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, looks like she does mostly mostly British miniseries. She was in The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions as Admiral Wirtz, but she is most known for being Mon Mothma and also being absolutely stunning in everything she does. So I only have two notes on Genevieve O'Reilly real quick before we do it. Or one note on on Genevieve, technically, and then another one on technically Mon Mothma. So for Genevieve, so fun little thing she was in was The Legend of Tarzan in 2016, which 
was the star of that movie was Alexander Skarsgård, son of eldest son of Stellan Skarsgård, who plays Luthen in the show. So there's their connection right there. Guess who else was in that movie? Samuel L. Jackson. So Mace Windu oh, I remember was also this movie. in the movie. Yeah, so Mace Windu's in the movie and Mon Mothma's in the movie. So I thought that was funny that they're both in the movie. Um, just thought I'd bring that up. Another random thing um, that I do want to bring up because really, truly, when you think about it, the only other character who has met this, what we call the Star Wars trifecta, which is if you've appeared in both a Star Wars movie, a Star Wars TV show, and a Star Wars animated thing, would be Fennec Shand or Ming-Na Wen it has been all three of the same character in all three um, projects. Mon Mothma right here, Genevieve O'Reilly has also achieved a Star Wars trifecta because like you said, she was in Rogue One, she's in Andor and she's in Rebels. So she is a Disney trifecta. Forrest she's Whitaker a will film, also- a live action show and a, a animated show. Right, so Forrest Whitaker will also get that once he appears. So far he hasn't gotten it yet, but he will once he shows up later on in the season. But I just thought I'd throw that out there. Now you can talk about Mon Mothma for the next two minutes or five minutes or however long you can talk. My favorite Genevieve O'Reilly fact is it was recently revealed that she has actually met Caroline Blankiston, who played Mon Mothma in Return of the Jedi. The two Ooh. women have in fact actually met each other. Is she still alive? She's still alive. Okay. She is still alive. I mean, I know that. I mean, eighty-nine it's years that. old. Okay. She's eighty-nine years old, but she is still alive. Cool. At least like at time of recording. Claire, what did you think of uh, of this sequence? I'm I'm gonna go through stuff, but I want to give you the chance up front. What did you think of our introduction to Mon Mothma? I thought it was. Perfect. I think that I I definitely like being a fan of her character. Have a very obviously have strong opinions about like how I want her to be portrayed in this show, and I think it's very important too because she's a character who everyone knows as being one of the leaders of the rebellion, and people like everyone kind of knows her name and knows like what she's known for. Haven't gotten a lot of like what her actual character is. Like I think I think Rebels. She does. She has some really good moments in Rebels, but like she's still very much like a side character, and she's only there some of the time. And so I think it's very important how they're going to portray her now that she's getting like a major role in a series in this early period of Rebellion when things are like just starting to become organized. But I think that this was really an introduction, and I. I'm very curious to see like what her dynamic with Luthen is going to look like going forward and then also to see some of what she's doing independently from him like what she's physically doing to help the rebellion and also be a senator and also do the million other things that she has to be doing all the time um and then I just thought the dialogue in the scene the back and forth with her and Luthen was really well written all the dialogue in the show has been really good and really like authentic but I think the two of them have a really good like they have really good chemistry as actors and I think that it was really well written this scene where they first interact with each other I love the bit where like they go into the back room and then immediately drop the masks like the minute that the driver is out of the way, you can see both actors deflate. And it's there's something about watching a pair of actors who are masters of their craft do their thing. And that's one of those moments where Stellan switches to his rougher rebellion voice and Genevieve switches to a much more vulnerable, less practiced voice, but still very powerful because 
Luthen kind of feels like he's in charge and then she until she bites back at him and is like, don't lecture me about vulnerability. You think I haven't thought this through? You know, I I loved early on in the scene where they're having their history discussion because as Claire and I likely know and I've mentioned, Mon Mothma was considering being a historian. Uh. Mm-hmm. The Rogue One novelization, she took a year off at 15, which is probably when she met her shitty husband. Took a year off. She took a year off to just kind of wander like a gap year and, uh, and yes. she wanted to be a historian. So her conversation with Luthen, where they're talking about the importance of history and all of that. Well, speaking these, of history, are you going to tell us details. what any of these things are in this gallery? Ah, that is my second to next note, but I, I need to address something. Okay. If a man is a historian and he has a special interest in military artifacts, especially wartime military artifacts, run. Run away. <laughs> run as fast as you can. That was my first red flag that I was like, oh, this husband's going to be a piece of shit. Ah, uh, yes. As most husbands are. Oh, yes. I mean, (laughs) no, that was a huge, that was a funny moment for me because I I was texting a friend of mine who was a historian after the fact. And I was like, yeah, the minute they said that line, I was like, this man is going to be awful. All right, let's go into the Easter eggs. Here are the ones that I caught or were pointed out to me, but they're specifically ones that I can tell you where they are in the episode. Sure, there are more. I'm going to run through this list. Here are all of the Easter eggs in Luthen's gallery. We have a set of Mandalorian armor that we can see the the like upper chest plate mm. of the Mandalorian armor that we can see. Claire, do we know that that doesn't bear any colors, right? We we can't identify that Mandalorian armor. No, I don't think there's any color to it. I don't think there was any like clan symbols or anything. I don't think we can figure out which like sect of Mandalorians it came from. Yeah, pure. It looks like pure Beskar armor to me, which is weird. Speaking of armor, in the back of the shop, featured very prominently, we see Dark Lord Star Killer's armor from the Force Unleashed Two DLC. The one that I really hate, where he goes through and kills all the canon main characters, which did exactly one good thing by making Jedi Leia boss fight which was very good we'd love to see jedi leia uh thank you to everyone who tagged me in that or sent me that i saw it i knew what it was thank you for that really appreciate i really fucking hate the force unleashed claire uh it's something of a thing over here so that's what this is about uh we can also see tablets uh, that look like the hands from Star Wars Rebels of the Mortis Gods. Uh, we also can see a Keldor mask, which is the mask that Plo Koon wears, the breath mask. Probably not Plo Koon's mask because he did die in a fiery explosion. Mm. Uh, probably not his mask. Uh, in the back room, Luthen's back room, we can see uh, frozen in carbonite, what appears to be Indiana jo- an Indiana Jones whip that's frozen in carbonite, as well as uh, there's some sort of artifact uh, that's frozen in carbonite directly behind it. Finally, on the shelf behind Luthen, we can see Jedi and Sith holocrons in the back. But there are everyone's like oh they said there wasn't going to be any easter eggs in this show and it's like no what they said was there was going to be no fan service in the show i.e no characters were going to show up that didn't have a reason to be here Mm -hmm. there were going to be tons of easter eggs in the show and now for a mild digression that i like to call things of interest to charles and no one else specifically mon's line that every time she goes to the bank or that she goes to the bank 
it's a completely new staff. That is unheard of. Like, I worked in banking, and the degree that you have to go through of background checking to be a frontline, like, bank staff person is absurd even in our world. And here's the empire switching out entire banks. It goes to show Palpatine's control over the banks and the influence his government has in them, even down to the level of your everyday teller or banker, because they're going to be swapped out. If Mon's personal banker, because she's a senator, she's rich, she probably has her own personal banker working for her. Even if that person switched out, that's sort of understandable. They're swapping out entire groups of people just to keep an eye on the people coming in and out of the bank. So I found that line extremely interesting as a bank person, former bank person, being like, yeah, that would be really, really hard. Uh, also, can can we talk about Genevieve's acting in the final shot where she's in the cab and she's like so isolated and alone and you could see her palpable, visible anxiety on her face. Just mm, love it. I did see people talking about like um, how the, the big difference between her and Bail Organa is that she doesn't have anyone to let her guard down around because he has like Brea and Leia whereas she doesn't really have anyone to be that person for her. And I thought that was so interesting because we get a lot of her in this show is sort of this, like she has to put on like this facade when she goes to the Senate or when she's like in the gallery before she's in the back with Luthen. So I think that that's going to be a big theme for her is that she never gets a chance to just like relax and breathe and not have to worry about like who she has to be right now. I remember when there was an interview that came out and Genevieve was like, yeah, she's a woman who's under constant anxiety all the time. And all of us on the internet who have anxiety were like oh my god same <laughs> but i i love what they've done with that shot is it it's the same shot from the trailer but it's it's massively extended but they close it and they put this layer of glass between her and the world outside and you can actually watch when it jumps inside you can see her pull away from Luthen's shop and we know her driver is like a spy who's supposed to be spying on her you get this immediate sense that she is moving further and further away from any sort of safe harbor. And once again, she is adrift and alone and buried, like drowning in this ocean, being surrounded by sharks. And you get all this from a scene with no dialogue. Just Nicholas Bertel's score, the blocking, the framing, and Genevieve's face. I was just going to say, yeah, pretty much the same thing of like the the kind of like isolation that she's experiencing that's very unique to her. And I think that it's overlooked because everyone sees her as such a leader, but then it's like, okay, but she has to have like a life outside of that. And she doesn't really have that right now. Well, we can't all be the Organas, Claire. Listen. <laughs> can't all have fantastic lives outside of this. <laughs> we can't all have a perfect relationship and a perfect daughter, I guess. We can't all have uh, have our wonderful Alderani palace and families mm. that care about each other. Yeah, and, and, live on, and live on the most stunning planet in the galaxy. Can't be everyone. Claire, this is your year. Like, it I'm so envious is. of you. Getting, getting uh, Bale and Brea and Alderaan in... Uh, in Obi-Wan Kenobi and now Mon Mothma in Andor. This And this everyone is said I was crazy. Everyone was like, the Organas aren't going to be in Kenobi. It doesn't make any sense. And I was like, I'm telling you guys, they are. <laughs>
I I kind of knew ahead of time because I had I had read rumors, but I successfully hid that from Bradley for months. I did not tell him. And I didn't realize we were going to spend so much time on Alderaan. So literally, I remember thinking to myself, sitting at SWCA watching the premiere when the giant shots of Alderaan, I was like, Claire is going to lose their fucking mind. I had people reaching out to me being like, are you okay? I was one of those people. I was like, I barely, guys, I'm barely here. I was one of those people. I think I I was one of those people who reached out or yeah and I was also I remember I was telling you something about celebration but I can't remember it was the Mando trailer I was telling you about the Bo-Katan stuff in the Mando trailer jumping back to Gorn real fast uh Bradley you want to tell us who's playing Lieutenant Gorn and I want to note a detail in his costume before we head over to Mon and her shitty husband yeah so he is played by Sule Rimi and that's all I I have on him I don't have any information about what he's done because nothing looks familiar whatsoever. Let let me pull him up and see if it's I all can British. recognize anything. It's all British. You would you wouldn't know a single thing. Yeah, he's he's been in a lot, but nothing I recognize. Right. I do want to note that he is an Imperial Lieutenant. And if you look in the breast pocket of his poncho, you can actually see his lieutenant code cylinder. It's a very nice detail in the costume. Uh curious what Imperial Engineer is going to be showing up, but I don't think it's going to be super relevant. Anyway. Back to Mon Mothma. Uh, let's talk about her apartment design. Because we haven't seen Chandrillans, like, we haven't seen a lot of Chandrilla visually. We've never seen the planet visually depicted on screen. We've only read about it in book. Mm-hmm. All we know about the style of Chandrilla is through Mon and the outfit she wears. And up until Landoy, she's always worn the same, like, two outfits. <laughs> the same white robe and the same, same blue white robe. robe. <laughs> but we see the apartment. It's this beautiful, minimalist style. There's these marble everywhere. It's all very white and tan. Gorgeous. Yeah. Good colors. There's a little bonsai tree. It's uh I did like and that. She, that was really cool. And then she walks in and the first thing she does is take off her imperial chain. Like she's got the imperial logo. First thing she does is takes it off, sets it on the desk in the front. Like she can't wait to be rid of it. And I'm like, oh, this is so perfect. This is so perfect. We do then meet uh, Mon Mothma's husband, Perrin Fartha. Bradley, do you want to tell us who's playing Perrin Fartha? He's played by Alastair McKenzie. Um, He's best known for The Crown, um, other shows. But you know him from something that you absolutely either like or don't like. The jury's still out on whether or not you like these random-ass Dracula movies, but... I I hate this one, but please tell us about this (laughs) He's in... The 2013 Dracula show? Yes. So he, okay. if if you are like me, a Dracula aficionado, uh, and also really like fucking hates every adaptation of it ever, uh, you will remember this as being a relatively short-lived one-season TV show uh, back in 2013 starring, of all people, Jonathan Reese Myers of the Tudors fame as Count Dracula. Uh, it was a truly awful show. I do not remember who Alastair McKenzie played in it. Uh, I don't remember anything about this character because I try to forget that show. It used to be my second least favorite Dracula adaptation that I have seen. It is now my third because Netflix's Stephen Moffat's Mark Gatiss's Bram Stoker's BBC's Dracula came out. Uh, and, and I hate that 
miniseries more. Uh, but yes, Alexander McKenzie was in a Dracula adaptation. I I want to I want to toss things over to Claire before I get into the details. Uh, Mon Mothma husband reveal that happened. I just like I knew he was going to be terrible. I knew there was no way that she had like a great husband and her home life was so great. But like, oh my god, the second he opened his mouth, I was like. Mm-mm, we can't be doing this like I I need the fact that they got married when she was like 16 years old first of all is just really messed up but also how, how do we think putting he up is with this man? that's how what I was think thinking I was is. like how much older than her do we think he was when they got married is my question. I think they're the same age and my theory is because if you remember from the Rogue One novelization Remember that gap year? Uh, she apparently yeah. experienced a whirlwind romance during that gap year. I'm thinking this is that guy and they're around the same age. That's what she- I was thinking because I, like, I've seen people think saying they got married for like political reasons or whatever, but I think that they did get married for love because yeah, she did fall in love during that year, but clearly either since then he just got really terrible because they were obviously both very young at the time. So I right. think he just- or counterpoint teenagers at the time and now he's terrible (laughs) counterpoint this is not the same guy and the guy that she actually is in love with she couldn't marry because she had to get married to this guy for political reasons we also don't know it's a guy that she was in love with in in her gap year i thought you met her husband and i was like um oh no we don't i'm pretty i'm pretty sure we know that is it that that man has too much shitty cis white man energy. Uh, no, I was like, wait, no. a minute. I was like, whoa, I was whoa. talking about uh, whoever it was that she like had a romance with. Oh. So maybe she had a more illicit romance. Uh, Ooh, and I like that theory. Marry a guy because it was a political thing. Yeah, I personally is. tend toward. I'm with you, Claire. I'm I'm against it was a political match, if only because they kind of seem to get along, and I could see how the traits that like his free spirited sort of nature that he seems to have would be very attractive when you're 15, 16 and you've worked your entire life and you think that'll bring good balance, but then you move in different directions. And also like he doesn't know about her participation in the rebellion because he's a fascist piece of shit. Yeah. And I also think that um, like, I think they, yeah, I think they get, didn't get married for political reasons, but I do definitely think there's like political motivations to why if she can't stand being around him, why they don't just get divorced. Because I think that knowing how like the hollow net responds to things that politicians do from like especially from some like the Padme novels how they love to just blow everything out of proportion I think that getting a divorce is the last thing that she wants everyone to be talking about with her especially when she's trying to like do important things for the rebellion and like not stand out and not be suspicious I really think that her getting a divorce is not the best idea that's an excellent point that I hadn't even considered I I hadn't even considered that yeah because it's like why doesn't she just like divorce him well all eyes are on her and she is a woman in politics and we see what happens to Padme in the Padme books. I also find their fight to be super interesting on like a character level because everything he does in it is really shitty. And like, especially when he starts needling her, but it also goes to show how stressed and overworked she is all of the time where they clearly had this conversation. It was enough of a conversation for him to describe it as quote unquote, like wearing her or her to describe it as wearing her down, puts it on the calendar and then she can't even like 
get to it. So it there's so many layers to this and what it demonstrates about these two in their relationship, how business focused she is, but also how kind of stretched thin she is, but he doesn't realize that. But he's still being really shitty because he thinks he's being funny because that's how men are. You know, men are bad. <laughs> I also, the bit where like her, her staff member comes in and is like, she like snaps at the staff member a little bit. I found really interesting because one thing that doesn't get brought up about Mon as much as it should is that Mon is a terrifically like understanding and sympathetic person, but she does have immense privilege and she is born into a very privileged role. She's been a senator for a very long time. She seems aware of her privilege to an extent uh, when she brings up, like she makes a comment about shipping lanes being cut off and then makes a snide comment about like, well, maybe we can laugh about that over the third course like almost kind of being self-aware that she's running in this upper crust that doesn't understand or empathize with the plight of starving people but we also kind of see that she is very much part of this upper crust which is part of another part of her character that I'm interested to see the show develop yeah I agree and I think that comes into conversation a lot with people like talking about her versus someone like Saw Gerrera and I see a lot of debate over like who's who's actually more qualified to be leading a rebellion and I think that there's a misconception that like just because Mon Mothma is living in a very privileged position she's not putting herself at risk and she's not qualified to lead a rebellion because she like lives in a fancy apartment and like is a politician and whatever um but I think yeah this show is definitely gonna have to kind of like bridge that middle ground of like yes she does come from a very privileged position but yes she also cares about people and is also sticking her neck out and like putting herself in a lot of danger by helping the rebellion yeah absolutely and and i think that it too is going to play into the conflict that we're going to see later on uh particularly between saw and mon i think that going back and watching that argument that they have in rebels where she's she's presents words she presents herself as almost kind of like cold in a way like when she's in like leader mode she's very like composed and regal and saw is very firing he kind of needles her for that and i think that's going to take on an interesting new depth after we see the woman behind that regal pose in this show and also where she comes from i think that it's interesting to look at tuman's politics you know her sort of liberalism in a way where where she doesn't go as far she's very devoted to the concept of democracy she's very devoted to the concept of reconciliation whereas someone like saw is very no you need to shoot the fascists you need to shoot them what are you doing i think that her seeing her in this environment where she is stressed and she is trapped into a very terrible environment, but it's also an environment that presents its own privileges and with those privileges comes perspectives. And we're very much seeing the evolution of the woman who will eventually become the chancellor that both puts the new republic back together, but also makes decisions on how she handles the empire when she's the sole person in charge that will lead to the first order rising down the line that sets these events in motion. Just because I find Mon to be one of the most fascinating characters doesn't mean I agree with everything everything that she's eventually going to do. And I think it's really interesting to watch her as a character operate in the spheres that are setting her on that path. I also need to bring up, of course, some of the Easter eggs in this scene and things that are mentioned. Seating chart. Shut up, Bradley. You knew I was going to bring up the I knew you were going to bring up the seating chart. Okay, continue. Okay, so uh, Emily, at your weird weird aunt Emily, uh, who I converse with in the Divas podcast discord 
uh, we were having a conversation earlier today, she actually translated this seating chart near as we can tell. Okay. Uh, two of the characters that are mentioned on it are Ars Dangar and Slymore. We'll get to them in a minute. But I just want to note the rest of the characters that are not Mon or Perrin seem to be, for the most part, members of the Lucasfilm art department. Most That's of them worked on Andor. Some of them are just people high up in the department. There's one person on there who was in the art department for Rise of Skywalker. Uh, so it just seems to be art department people and their friends at nice. this party. Uh, so shout out to you. Uh, Shout out to Emily uh, at your weird aunt Emily on TikTok for translating all of that. And shout out to the Divas Podcast Network Discord for being the ones to figure out its art department people. Uh, Ars Dangor and Slymore are mentioned by name. Ars Dangor is kind of complicated because he's always been canon and he's widely thought to be one of the guys in Palpatine's like weird little old white guy cabal in Return of the Jedi. But, and he's listed on reference photos, that name is mentioned, but we're not sure which one he is. And we've never really got canon confirmation on what this guy looks like, uh, but he dates back to Return of the Jedi. He's he's in Palpatine's inner circle. Slymore is the much more interesting one. Slymore is the Umbaran woman that's always following Palpatine around. She's his chief of staff. Perrin invited the fucking Leo McGarry to Palpatine's President Bartlett to dinner and thought this wasn't going to be a problem for his wife. What the fuck, Perrin? The fuck, man? Do do either of you know, uh, do either of you get the West Wing reference? No. Nope. Uh, <laughs> the West Wing is a good show. The chief of staff position in the West Wing, uh, the reason I bring up the West Wing is because it does it kind of the best. Uh, you remember Scandal? Yes. Do you remember how important the chief of staff was to the president in Scandal? Yeah, it's always like the person who's going to go down for, you know, whatever. If they if the president can't go down for the crimes or whatever, it's like it's always right. going to be the chief of staff. That's Slymore. Got it. That's the role Slymore plays. Uh, the Grand Vizier is also there. Slymore has been showing up in particularly in the comics lately, uh, particularly in the Darth Vader comics. Uh, but she's kind of a big deal. She's like a she's an unborn woman, which uh, regrettably is the same species as Orla Jereni. Orla, I'm so sorry. You have to anyone be associated with Slymore. Uh, I apologize for this. So question, if she shows up to this dinner party next week and she's pregnant. Oh my God, think... we're not doing trioculus, Bradley, or triclops or whatever. <laughs> do you think Shut triclops up. is in there? Just saying. Oh my God. Out there. Oh my God. How funny what? would it be if they also did that plot? Like, in addition to The Rise of Skywalker. That would like, be they mildly did hilarious. Both. How funny would that be? That would be mildly hilarious if they did Glove of Darth Vader. <laughs> Just saying, throwing it out there. Uh, Mon also, bless you, uh, the writer of this episode, who we'll get to in a bit, bless you for including this line, because I was so worried the Gorman Massacre was not going to be mentioned in this show. But from the bat, episode four, Mon Mothma's first appearance, we have our first mention of Gorman, the Gorman. If you do not remember the episode Secret Cargo that I told you to go watch in episode one's Mon's Mon, one episode one's Mon Mothma Minute, uh, the Gorman Massacre is the thing that Mon will publicly denounce about two years from now and uh, then leave to go be in charge of the rebellion. So I like that we're already getting a mention of the Gorman stripping lanes and we see what's ultimately going to lead to a lot of unrest. Palpatine's going to crack down on it and a lot of people are going to get massacred. I have one more note on Perrin. Uh, that is not just, I hate him, which is a note. And the interesting thing to me is, is when they're talking about it and she's like, all of these people are constantly trying to block what I do. 
And he's like, well, if you have them over for dinner, maybe they won't block you tomorrow. Perrin does not understand how this works, like at all. That's politics, baby. Like, you just gotta be nice to everybody and uh, maybe they'll uh, sign your bill and maybe they'll <laughs> do whatever. You, you'd think, but it, I think it speaks to Perrin's status as an outsider, that he doesn't seem that involved with politics. He just wants to throw his parties and have fun. He and he's like got a, a very yeah he's got a very juvenile naive view of his wife's job to where he's like oh invite these fascists over and i'll support your anti-fascist movement in the senate is like no no they won't these people are fascist baron they don't care if you invited them to dinner but there are no politics in star wars there's definitely no commentary being made here on the delusions of the upper class and how they are disconnected both from their own politics and from the suffering of other people. No politics whatsoever. Back on Aldani, Val preps the team on the plan to attack the garrison. Cassian is skeptical about a meteor shower serving as a distraction for the heist, but believes the plan will work. Deidre brings her case to Major Partigas and he brushes her off that conspiracy of a rebellion forming um, and tells her to focus on on her incarceration. And finally, as the rebels are sitting around the campfire, Cassian is asked to memorize the plan before he is allowed to eat. We're going to blow through this fast. Oh my god, I love miniatures! <laughs> I love little miniatures. I actually, uh, I used to collect uh, Lord of the Rings miniatures, actually, 20 years ago, when mm. the films were, were first coming out. Uh, I was young, so not the ones that you could paint, uh, but I did collect some pre-painted miniatures, uh, which I still have spread out in two boxes because I had that many of them. So remember how I mentioned earlier that there's a big red flag that this heist is going to go off the rails? Oh, yeah. Please refresh everyone and our well, guests on the rule. Well, I'm going to ask, heist. Claire, are you familiar with my heist rule? I don't believe so. All right. I will now explain the heist rule to you, and I will. I apologize. I am going to ruin heists for you in films forever. <laughs> forever. So the heist rule is when you see a heist being planned, if they discuss the plan and also show the plan intercut being executed. So they talk about it and then you see flashes of the plan being discussed or plan being enacted while they're talking about it. The heist will succeed up to the point where they stop intercutting it. That is the point where it will go wrong. If they show the heist being discussed, and then they start the heist, it will go off the rails immediately and probably fail. <laughs> so it is my belief that this heist is going to go off the rails immediately uh, because we see the plan being discussed, but it is not intercut. So that is a bad sign for the heist. Sorry, you're all going to die. Um, I like how we saw the plan in the trailer a little bit. Uh, there's scenes in the trailer that we see of Cassian on a ship and it's like a glowing red background in the sky behind him in, on the ship. And it seems to be like that's during the meteor shower. And spoiler alert, he's all by himself on that ship. So I don't know how this is going to work out for everybody. Now, we didn't see anybody else in the ship, so maybe they were just in other seats. But I don't know. You're right. I think it's going to go off the rails pretty quickly. We also, we also see them in Imperial uniforms in the trailer, which they don't discuss sneaking in that way. So they don't discuss a lot of the specifics of the plan, so those may work. Uh, but I definitely think that the core plan of fall of like stealing, breaking in and stealing the thing, that's going to go off the rails basically immediately. So the scene where uh, Deidre and, and Blevin have their like argument in front of Partigas is interesting to me because Deidre is correct in general. 
with everything she says about the the organize the rebellions organizing. She is, however, wrong about this specific instance, and Partigast is right, where he's like, This may have just been a one-off theft. But you know, she's a woman, so you can't take her seriously. So well, that that seems to be the general vibe. <laughs> well, no, because that's the vibe of this scene. Right. Once again, you have jokingly identified <laughs> the thing the political thing that they are doing uh yeah like when he talks to her the interesting thing about the show is he doesn't out and out come out and say like you're a diversity hire but it has all of the vibes of you're a diversity hire which definitely informs a lot of her character what also informs a lot of her character is that she used to be a cop this does explain many things Claire, what were you, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this scene in particular, because we had talked about Deidre earlier. No, yeah, I completely agree. I feel, it feels very like we're giving you less work to do than everyone else. And we're also giving you kind of like the work that doesn't really matter. But then when she identifies like real actual problems, they're like, no, 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 that's, that's not a thing. Like you're just making that up just because you want to see things where there are none. But it's, it's very interesting because it's like, the empire's kind of attitude is like any hint of like rebellion or even like an individual person standing up against them is like immediately going to get shut down. But when she sort of poses the idea of like, maybe this wasn't an isolated incident, maybe like these little hints of rebellion are like more than we thought they were and gets shut down by this one person. It's like, but how, how is that going to turn out when it turns out that these actually are, there actually is rebel activity and they actually are starting to organize. And she was the one who was right about it. but is not going to be the one who gets credit for being right about it because there are people who outrank her who don't want her to rise up in the ranks of the ISB. Oh, that's such a good point. I didn't even realize that even if she turns out to be right, they're not going to give her any credit. Yeah, that's what I'm afraid is going to happen for her, unfortunately. Oh, man. Yeah, that, oof. Do you think we're going to see a rebel defector, Deidre, possibly? I, I don't think so. I feel the same way about Cyril. I've seen a lot of people saying he they think he's going to defect or like is going to start to work with ISB and then defect. And before the series started, I kind of thought that. But now I'm like, I feel like it's a better story if he, like I said earlier, like gives everything he has to them and then still ends up with nothing. But I feel like for her, it could kind of be the opposite where like either she's going to keep pushing until she eventually does like get to rise up in the ranks and get more power or someone else is going to take credit for the things that she's figured out and she's going to like end up at the bottom again. But I still don't think that ends with her defecting per se. I just think it ends up with her like not being in a lower status in the empire than she is now. What should be fucking Blevin? What should be fucking Blevin? It probably probably will. It probably will. If they need someone from the ISV to like be their kind of person who's like heading it up being like, oh, this is all their work and they're who you're going to turn to about stuff concerning like rebel activity in this sector. It's going to be him. It's going to be him. I hate that. (laughs) I hate that so much. Ugh. The show is such good political writing. Like it really goes all the way to be like, we're just going to out and out depict this stuff on screen, which is awesome. You know, not only because it's showing it in a Star Wars, but we can talk about it and we can shine attention on these sorts of things. I am I am loving the conversation around Andor right now. Uh, I do want to note the system that she's in charge of. I didn't write down the name of it. In Legends, it was a former separatist system. Uh, So somebody pointed out to me that it was really interesting that it seems like they're generally dealing with, at least she seems to be dealing with former separatist systems. 
Um, that was just something I pointed out. I have two notes about the final scene. I just want to eat, note that can I eat is a hard mood. That's Feel that in my mood. bones. <laughs> but I also want to pull the room. So Vel and Cinta are sitting real close together, huh? Just want to throw that out there. Pull the room. No, yeah, they definitely how, are. <laughs> how, how do we feel about how closely they're sitting together? I told you guys that the only the women are going to survive. Cassian and the ladies, that's it. No, exactly, that's what I was going to say. They're the only ones who are going to make it out and maybe Lieutenant Gorn, but that's, we'll see. We'll see what his deal is. But no, I think it's literally just going to be the two of them and Cassian left after this is over. I think probably, probably that would that would be correct. Uh, maybe they will go off and uh, be happy and totally be a couple because because they are sitting next to each other, which is we know in fandom spaces is the biggest indicator of someone being a couple in media is when they sit next to each other once. One time, yeah. One time. All right. Before we uh, race to our ending here, because uh, we're coming up on time, Bradley, we have a new director and writer. We do. Do you want to tell us about our new director and our new writer? We have uh, Susanna White, director of this episode known for she does a lot of tv stuff one of the movies that she's directed that i know is like it's called nanny mcphee and the big bang <laughs> um oh my so, goodness yeah if you like the nanny mcphee movies there you go she did that <laughs> other than that i didn't really recognize anything except something called boardwalk empire she did an episode of um that's a pretty Neat. well-known she also did an episode show. of billions looks like and now tell us about our writer dan gilroy the last three episodes were written by uh his brother tony gilroy the yeah, creator okay, sorry. Of the show. i didn't know if they were like yeah i didn't know if they were brothers or if they were they are brothers okay. okay so they're brothers uh tony gilroy is his brother so he wrote this episode so I thought he that actually was has two brothers all three of them work in the film industry oh nice well he wrote this episode he, okay so he wrote a movie interesting that i saw recently which is called uh velvet buzzsaw i've watched that movie it has renee russo and jake gillenhall it's such an it. odd movie but if you watch it Love there you go movie. he did that um but he also wrote the screenplay for the born legacy which we talked about how this is like a reoccurring theme in this show that the born movies are going to be like a relation to this show so i thought that was interesting yep so dan gilroy is going to be writing our next three episodes fun facts that i just googled completely for no reason i was like oh john gilroy is also there i wonder if he's worked on andor sure enough john gilroy dan gilroy's fraternal twin brother uh edited episodes one two three and six of andor edited he didn't do anything else edited that he was the editor on interesting he's also the editor of rogue one a star wars story of course (laughs) suicide squad pacific rim the boyd legacy of Uh, course yeah so there's your fun fact for the day cool so they there seems to be a theme of brotherhood uh in this as well so maybe we'll maybe that's more the luthan character is more like a brother to cassian less than a father maybe shitty older brother right constantly getting him into trouble who knows who knows well claire thank you so much for joining us to uh discuss this episode and in particular the mon mothma stuff uh do you want to tell the people where they can find you plug your pluggables promote your podcasts yeah, so I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Claire Crees. Um, and then we also have Fulcrum Transmissions podcast, which is on pretty much any podcatcher. Um, and then Fulcrum Transmissions also has an Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Um, so you can follow all of those too. And yeah, you can find me on any of those 
being insane, talking about Mon Mothma and the, my other favorite Star Wars characters. And that's about it. All righty. Well, again, thank you so much for being here. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, and Bradley, if you want to go ahead and run our socials so that we can get out of here. Thank you for listening to Gold Squadron Gaze. Did Charles fuck something up? Send us a message at goldsquadrongaze at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Gold Squad Gaze. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Gold Squadron Gaze. Subscribe to us on YouTube at Gold Squadron Gaze, where we post the podcast as well as exclusive content. Please join us next week and every week for more of Gold Squadron Gaze. I didn't double check this, but I don't think Cassian has ever been in hyperspace before. Huh? I don't think Cassie. Well, he would have had to have been. Hmm. Because when it jerks, he like falls back. I don't know where yeah. this point is going. Cut this part out, Bradley. Okay. I was confused for a second. <laughs> okay. This will Never go mind. in the end clip. That's for sure. Never mind.